0: In the wake of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, where we ducked the nuclear bullet, you may hear nuclear reactor operators claim that nothing will ever go wrong with their expensive technology. But even if something should go wrong, all you need do is evacuate to safety. And then you hear Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education say... In the evaluations that
1: Arnie Gunderson and
0: I and Fairwinds have done
1: there is not one reactor that we know of anywhere in the world that has an adequate evacuation plan
0: When you hear something like that you know that you are in the seat that we all share Nuclear, Nuclear Hot
2: seat. seat What are those people thinking? New.
0: This week, we continue our coverage of the impact of recent hurricanes Irma and Harvey on nuclear reactors in Florida and Texas with a trio of interviews. We start with Nancy Faust of Simply Info, who orients us to the kinds of problems that could and did show up at South Texas Project's two nuclear reactors in Bay City, Texas, and Florida Power and Light's four reactors, two each at Turkey Point and St. Lucie. Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear joins us again to tell us the latest on what's gone wrong with the reactors, the danger points, and what's being done about it, if anything. Then Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education provides perspective on how the experiences of Fukushima and what we continue to learn from that ongoing disaster in Japan must be used to inform all decisions that we make about our neighborhood nuclear reactors before They are threatened by natural disasters. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than Florida Power and Light and South Texas Project combined gave us about their nukes during the recent hurricanes. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 12, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. This week, we again focus the entire program on hurricanes and nukes, which are a really bad combination. Hurricane Irma was definitely not our friend, as it took aim at the entire state of Florida, including four operating nuclear reactors on two sites: Turkey Point, outside of Miami-Dade County, and St. Lucie, up the coast of Florida, and built on a barrier island, which is a fancy name for a sandbar with water on both sides. Despite the claims of Florida Power and Light that the reactors were safe, Turkey Point has historically had problems, from $90 million in damages from Hurricane Andrew in 1992 to the discovery just last year that the reactors had been leaking radioactive contaminated materials into the protected waters of Biscayne Bay for years. Workers at Turkey Point and at FPL's St. Lucie nuclear plant anonymously complained 160 times, that's one-six-zero times, between 2005 and 2011, far higher than at nuclear plants in other areas of the country during that period. However, FPL's policy of retaliation against whistleblowers has prevented even more workers concerned about safety issues from coming forward publicly. The three interviews we have today We'll give you a sense of the dangers posed by Hurricane Irma, as well as some follow-up on Hurricane Harvey and the Texas nuclear reactors. First, we hear from Nancy Faust, communications manager and research team member for SimplyInfo.org, a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster. We asked Nancy about the nature of the dangers faced at Turkey Point and St. Lucie from the hurricane, and what might have happened if luck and a last-minute shift of Irma's trajectory were not on our side. Nancy and I spoke this morning, September 12,
2: 2017. Nancy Faust, always great to have you back on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great, thanks for having me. Nancy, looking at the situation with Hurricane Irma, now that we're on the other side of it, By running at full power going into the storm, what were some of the possible problems and risks that the reactors at Turkey Point and St. Lucie faced? There's a number of
3: different things that can go wrong. The concern we have when they're running at full power is if they do need to shut down, shutdown is always the highest risk phase of where they're operating. Operating at full power in good conditions is usually pretty stable. They can pay attention to what's going on and address things fairly quickly when you're going into a shutdown there's lots of things that they're watching there's more chance that things can go wrong and then they have to try to address them in the middle of a shutdown now you add in a hurricane on top of that now they're addressing a whole bunch of things in the middle of a shutdown and they're dealing with a hurricane and the hurricane becomes a bigger problem because you can't go outside and deal with anything If there's a problem in the switchyard where the electricity is controlled, if they need to go outside to deal with like a diesel generator that's outside or another piece of equipment that's outside that needs to be addressed or get to another building, um, you really can't do that in the middle of a hurricane.
2: Did we face the possibility of a real risk of a Fukushima-style loss of cooling accident in Florida at either Florida Power and Lights Turkey Point units or at St. Lucie?
3: There's always a risk when you're dealing with having to possibly shut down a reactor or dealing with things that are challenging the systems of a reactor. The pieces of the puzzle that make A Fukushima-type disaster is a complete loss of electricity, which is called a a total station blackout, and a loss of access to what they call the ultimate heat sink. In plain English, that's the ocean or the river that the reactor uses for cooling water. If they lose access to the seafront, to those water intakes, and they lose access to electricity, that creates conditions where you have a Fukushima-type accident. You're suddenly in a desperate situation trying to find any way possible to cool the reactor. And when you don't have power, you don't have access to many of the control systems. And most reactor designs only have about one backup that can run for a short period of time without those two things. And once that stops working, that's when things go into a meltdown. And that's what we saw at Fukushima. With a couple of the reactors, they were able to get these kind of last-ditch cooling systems to work for a while. And then when those died off, They had nothing because they had been unable to restore water from the ocean and electricity. So anytime you get in a situation where things are being challenged, it raises the risk that if something else goes wrong, you could cascade into a bigger problem.
2: And it wouldn't take anything catastrophic to take out the power or take out the ability to cool. Could it be something as simple as a blockage in the intake pump?
3: It can be. There have been various instances where reactors have had to shut down because they've had major blockages into their intake systems for bringing water in to cool the reactors. So even something as minor as jellyfish have caused reactors to have to shut down. What we worry about when there's a hurricane is that storm surge can get high enough that they have to shut down the water intake pumps because it's either being overtopped by the storm surge or the storm surge is getting so high that it's starting to risk the electrical systems that run those pumps. So that's one worry with a storm surge. There's also always the potential that wind-blown things could potentially hit the pump systems because some of them are in buildings, some of them are exposed. And if you start taking out any key part of that system that runs those intakes, then you can lose water access. And in the middle of a hurricane, there's no ability to go drop a line into the seafront to run a portable pump because you just can't get outside in that point.
2: In addition to the hurricane danger, on Saturday at 447 Eastern Time, the National Weather Service issued a tornado warning for central St. Lucie County and specifically stated that two thunderstorms capable of producing a tornado were located over St. Lucie Nuclear Power Plant. What was the additional danger that was faced during that period of time?
3: The way they look at the dangerous to a nuclear power plant, they'll look at things like wind speeds. And at a certain wind speed, they start worrying about blown projectiles, you know, pieces of equipment, anything that's getting pulled up by either a hurricane or tornado that can be thrown around. And the power companies like to talk about how safe the containment building for the reactor itself is and that it can withstand you know things being thrown around by a hurricane or a tornado what they don't talk about is all of those support systems around the plant and those are what you really worry about when there's a hurricane or a tornado that may hit a facility it can take out the incoming power so there's the electrical towers that bring the power lines into the plant and the switchyard that controls the power coming into the plant, and that's what's needed to keep all the emergency systems running. So you worry about damage to that from the winds. Any other support system, the electrical that runs between different buildings, sometimes there's pumps on the outside or other equipment that's you know exposed, and you lose that, then you lose that part of that safety system. So that's what we worry about when there's high hurricane winds or a tornado that's challenging a plant site.
0: Always great having you on the show, Nancy. Thank you so much.
3: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Nancy Faust of Simply Info. Next, we again talked with Paul Gunter, director of the Reactor Oversight Project for Beyond Nuclear. He and I spoke yesterday, September 11, 2017, and Paul had just come from a meeting at Nuclear Regulatory Commission headquarters in Rockville, Maryland. He wasted no time getting
4: into the issues. One of the things that I did want to talk about with you is the concern that when uh, Turkey Point Unit 4 scrammed, they did dump a tremendous amount of steam generator steam into the atmosphere. And that's an extreme event in itself. It sounds like a jet aircraft flying over, but it also probably released tritium into the atmosphere with that event and uh, we've seen that before. The, the, the NRC and industry will always discount tritium as a no-nevermind kind of radioactive isotope. We don't. We take issue with that and these kinds of events, um, as is noted in this morning's event report that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission did put out. They basically stated that, uh, you know, at the very end, they said there is no known leakage, primary to secondary steam generators tube leakage. But for them to even raise the issue that there's no known leakage in this steam dump that they did to the atmosphere, it raises a red flag, because that that tritium, without question, there was tritium in that steam release to the atmosphere on uh, Sunday.
2: And how do you know that there definitely was tritium in there?
4: Because it's very difficult to contain tritium. Because tritium is a radioactive isotope of hydrogen, hydrogen will permeate concrete, it will permeate steel. It's in high concentrations in the primary coolant loop on these pressurized water reactors. And it's very likely that when they dumped the steam from the secondary side of those steam generators, if you understand how these things operate, in our mind, no doubt there was tritium released to the atmosphere during that steam dump. The whole scram that occurred was precisely what we were trying to suggest that industry and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission avoid by putting these reactors into coal shutdown in advance of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. And they did put Turkey Point Unit 3 into shutdown on Saturday in the advance of the arrival of Hurricane Irma. Florida Power and Light made the decision to operate Turkey Point Unit 4 at 100% power throughout this extreme weather event. Now, Irma did shift to the west, and so it went up the Gulf Coast instead of making a direct hit on Turkey Point and St. Lucie, which are on the Atlantic coast. But it was big enough that our concern then and now is that this extreme weather event very likely caused an instantaneous blip in the grid system they didn't lose off-site power to Turkey Point, but very likely they had what's called a perturbation, which caused a brief, uh, you know, a split-second interruption of power to the Turkey Point unit that was operating. And that very minute disruption essentially caused that unit to scram that split-second glitch in the electrical grid system very likely is what's responsible for Turkey point unit 4 to scram. Now, there's some debate even within the NRC right now whether that was a manual scram by the operator or whether it was an automatic scram triggered by this event. So the NRC is really disputing within itself right now, but again, Our concern is that when you scram a reactor, it's like hitting your brakes on the interstate. It is a violent maneuver that tests the integrity of a number of systems as you drive control rods into this super hot reactor. And then you have this tremendous amount of heat from an operating reactor going from 100% fission down to zero power you've got to deal with that heat. And that's what they dumped into the atmosphere was the steam, uh, tremendous amounts of pressurized steam, over a 1,000 pounds per square inch in the reactor. But, uh, you know, that's generating tremendous amounts of steam in the steam generators that powers the turbine. And, and it was that turbine side of the steam generators that they dumped into the atmosphere. Now, they're claiming there was no leakage between the primary and the secondary. But we simply don't buy that given how tritium can permeate steel. So it is a concern. And we are
2: in a situation where the EPA radnet monitors, which are intended to measure radiation, the five radnet monitors in Florida have all been turned off as of Friday, September 8th, meaning even if there was a tritium leak, there's no way that it could be measured because the equipment meant to measure it is not in operation.
4: And again, the NRC and the industry will discount tritium exposures. And the NRC discount tritium as what they call a, a weak beta-emitter, which means it will not penetrate your skin. We. Have a concern that in fact it is a short range beta emitter, which is more effective in cellular disruption and damage than gamma radiation. But because it's short range, as hydrogen, it can displace natural hydrogen in the DNA chain with this radioactive hydrogen. So ingestion by inhalation or picking it up through ingestion of a tritiated food dose. Now, we're not suggesting that there were extreme doses, but we are concerned that had that reactor been in cold shutdown, that would have been the safest and most secure way of avoiding these violent maneuvers like SCRAM and the associated huge steam dumps uh, into the atmosphere that that sound like a jet liner flying over your house there was a gamble taken by operating these reactors with this extreme uh, uh, weather event bearing down that essentially encompassed the whole state of florida and they didn't really know at that time which direction that the eye wall of that storm was going to take that uncertainty that they didn't know which coast Hurricane Irma was going to go with the eyewall was what prompted Florida Power and Light to shut down Turkey Point Unit 3 as preparation to um, not overwhelm their site crew. And then they left Unit 4 operating. Florida
2: Power and Light has been tremendously inconsistent with their information flow. First, in a press conference last Wednesday, they announced that they would take their four nuclear reactors offline, at least that's the impression that they gave, and that they would do so well in advance of IRMA making landfall. I think they had the reactors at Turkey Point set to be shut down as of Friday night, and then on Saturday morning, St. Lucie. And this is a process that takes approximately 12 hours under good circumstances, they then turned it around so that they were running all four. Then they decided, well, we'll shut down three in advance. Then they were forced to shut down Turkey Point 4. And now at St. Lucie, Unit 2 is still
4: at 100% power. But tell us what happened with Unit 1. The salt spray off of the ocean and the surge, this has brought in a tremendous amount of salt accumulation on the electrical switchyard at Unit 1 there at St. Lucie. And uh, the caking of salt in the switch yard has prompted Florida Power and Light to power down, not shut down, but power down St. Lucie 1 so that they can try to make some kind of reparations there. What's the danger with the salt buildup? It's going to reduce the um, efficiency and it's also going to raise issues with regard to the operation of the facility. So they have powered down Unit 1. They may be looking to remove that salt from the switch yard. I'm not sure exactly how they would do that. Probably they could hose it down. They are taking some actions to try to clean that situation up. But we've been concerned all along that these operators, be it uh, South Texas or Florida Power and Light, have prioritized a production agenda over safety margins. The inconsistency is most marked there at Turkey Point where they did shut down one, but they did operate Unit 4 until they had an event that was related to the electrical grid. Paul, this raises the major issue for me, and that is why
2: is the NRC not the one calling shutdown? Why does it remain in the hands of The utility, be it South Texas Project for Harvey or Florida Power and Light for what we just experienced with Irma. Why are the utilities allowed to make their own decisions about this without any kind of regulatory or government input?
4: In all fairness, Florida Power and Light, they're the operator and they are at the site and they are experiencing firsthand the conditions. And there are technical specifications that determine the operation. For example, they're not required to shut down the nuclear power station until they actually experience hurricane force winds. So by operating the Turkey Point unit, they apparently did not experience sustained winds above 73 miles per hour which would have required them to put that reactor into shutdown. Now, that would have meant they would have started the shutdown process with the immediate onset of hurricane conditions. And uh, again, we have been arguing that you're better off being in cold shutdown prior to the onset of hurricane conditions. You know, there are NRC inspectors in both instances at South Texas and at Florida power and lights reactors. So there is regulatory oversight there, but they do leave it to the operator because they're the first-hand observers for those reactor conditions during these extreme weather events. It
2: just strikes me that There are other concerns for a nuclear plant operator for the utility that they are there to make money, and perhaps that skews their perspective on it, as opposed to having a blanket statement of, okay, you hit 73 miles an hour as opposed to sustained, and I don't know if anybody has defined how long the wind has to be sustained at 73 miles an hour before
4: it counts, well, it can't, it, it's, it can't be a, just a gust of wind. I don't know how long of duration the wind must be sustained, but I would say it's on the order of minutes as opposed to hours. But, you know, Libby, I agree with you that the reason we're advocating for advanced shutdown to put these reactors in their most stable and safest condition The whole issue of public safety is not just determined by plant conditions during these extreme weather events. A hurricane has a much broader impact on the entire emergency planning zone. These uh, radiological reception centers that are located miles away from the reactor, you can have hurricane conditions make emergency routes impassable or or can uh, destroy the radiological reception centers that are responsible for receiving evacuees and part of the decontamination process. Given these impacts of a hurricane can be far and wide-reaching, we believe that the full impact of the hurricane, not only on plant conditions but on the conditions within the emergency planning zones themselves, has to be taken into account in terms of what power levels, shutting these plants down in advance, how that contributes to maximizing public health and safety.
2: And it raises the question, how much can we rely on the utility to operate primarily in the interest of public health and safety when there's the possibility of dollars to be made? Because that is their primary goal, is to make money off of their extremely expensive facility. What I want to do now is shift this a little bit. You were physically at the NRC this morning, and this was on a longstanding meeting that was unrelated to the hurricane. But was there any sense of a shift in the atmosphere there or concerns of people? Was Irma a topic of conversation at the NRC building when you were there this morning?
4: There were a number of side conversations uh, leading up to the meeting. Where you know NRC personnel have their own relatives uh, there in Florida on both coasts that reflected their concerns. I will note that the beginning of this morning's meeting, though, however, on September 11th began with a moment of silence for the um, 9/11 victims from the uh, attacks on the uh, World Trade Center and on the Pentagon. And it reminded me that we're aware of the inherent danger of nuclear power as is raised by these extreme weather events, but it's also important to remember that on September 11th, 2001, the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon had originally been part of a much larger scheme to hijack 10 aircraft and direct some number of those aircraft into U.S. nuclear power stations. So it's a concern that both extreme weather and extreme levels of deliberate violence expose us to the inherent danger of... Nuclear power and and the potential for a radiological release. The hurricane event. You know, we had days, even weeks, as we watched Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma approach the United States, and we had uh, ample time in the case of Florida for three million people to evacuate days before the actual. Storm made landfall. We may not have that opportunity of advanced warning with the advent of a deliberate act of violence that comes in an aircraft, as the um, Al Qaeda conspirators originally planned. And again, this raises the concern that you know we need to be redirecting 21st century energy policy into safe affordable, and clean energy, and to get away from this inherent danger that leaves us vulnerable in these instances of extreme weather, extreme climate, and extreme violence. That was
0: Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. We'll continue with our coverage of hurricanes and nukes, a really bad combination, in just a moment. But first... My ongoing thanks to all of you who help support the show. Whether you choose to give a one-time donation, a more than one-time donation, or choose to buy the show a cup of coffee, what I call the Starbucks donation, a monthly recurring donation of $5, or if you choose, something larger. Everything counts towards covering our expenses, and your kind words help keep me in good heart, and those two things together keep the show running. Now... A confession. I have a birthday coming up at the end of this month. And if you are so inclined to help me celebrate, please use that milestone, or millstone, to help keep Nuclear Hot Seat going. It's the show you can depend upon for verifiable nuclear news, slam-bang interviews, bad puns, good grammar, and a whole bunch of anti-nuclear attitude. To donate, right now, hit the pause button and go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. That will let you make a one-time donation of any size. Or, you can click on the big green donate button to quickly set up a monthly $5 donation. Whatever you can do to help, know that it is necessary to the running of this show, deeply appreciated, and I am truly grateful to you. Maggie Gunderson is our next interviewee She is founder of Fairwinds Energy Education, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that, since its founding in 2008, has held the mission to educate the public about nuclear power production, engineering, reliability, and safety issues. She is also a former employee of the nuclear industry. Maggie and I spoke on Monday, September 11, 2017. Maggie
2: Gunderson, great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for inviting me. What is the current situation at South Texas Project, two nuclear reactors near Bay City, Texas? As I understand
1: it, at this current point in time, there were no extensive ramifications from the hurricane hitting the South Texas plant. If there has been some kind of significant issue, I have not been able to find any record of that with the NRC. You know, I'm sure that will come out in time. When Hurricane Andrew hit Florida in August of 1992, it did more than $90 million worth of damage to the Turkey Point plants.
2: Was that known immediately after the accident or only after there has been a chance to evaluate the property?
1: That was only known later after they did the evaluation.
2: So looking at South Texas Project, with there's two nuclear reactors, both of these nukes ran at full power throughout Hurricane Harvey. And the nuclear industry is claiming that as a great victory because look at how reliable nukes are. To your way of thinking, from your perspective, how smart was it that they ran both reactors at full power for the entire extent of the storm and the following
1: flooding. It was incredibly stupid. Um, it shows hubris, and in the face of what could have been incredible tragedy, and I think they are very lucky to come away unscathed.
2: How does the fair winds work? that you've been doing in the aftermath of the Japanese earthquake and tsunami and the start of the ongoing Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster influence your understanding of the dangers that are caused by a hurricane such as Harvey.
1: It influences our work tremendously. I can tell you that it's changed how we look at everything, how we do everything, and the direction of both Fairwinds Associates our consulting, and Fairwinds Energy Education, our nonprofit. When Hurricane Harvey was hitting South Texas, South Texas did not need that power. People were out of power. The lines were not sending power. They did not need to keep producing that power. When a nuclear plant is operating in the midst of such a disaster, there's the risk of loss of offsite power, it's called a loop, L-O-O-P. And if the uh, power is lost, then the plant, which is operating at 100%, cannot send any of it le- its electricity out. So it has to shut down. It has to have a place for that electricity that it's generating to go. To shut down in an emergency situation like that is a hard shutdown, and The NRC itself, Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself has said that there is a 50% greater probability of a meltdown due to the forced closure during a loop because it makes the diesels have to kick in and the diesels are operating then so you're always at a, a higher safety risk that the diesels won't operate correctly. The decay heat is much higher. If they had shut the plants down, and this applies for uh, Florida Power and Light with with Turkey Point and for St. Lucie, as well as for what happened at the South Texas project. If they shut down in advance of a huge hurricane coming in, then the plant is cooler, the decay heat is much higher when they continue operating and have to do a sudden shutdown. So they need much more water to cool it and have to cool it for longer. If they had shut down in advance, then it's easier to control, it's cooling down. And if they lose offsite power or they lose their diesel, the fuel pool itself and the fuel inside the reactor will be able to maintain its cooling temperature.
2: And when you talk about cooling, that's actually pulling water in from the body of water that they are on. In the case of the Florida nuclear reactors, that is ocean water. But that's being pulled in in the middle of the hurricane actually happening. I understand that there are problems that can be created by the debris clogging or doing damage to the intake portion of the nuclear reactors.
1: Exactly. That's called the Lewis,
2: L-O-U-H-S,
1: the loss of the ultimate heat sink. And that's what happened at Fukushima Daiichi. People talk about how the diesel failed. Let's not even talk about that. The diesels couldn't get the water. They couldn't pump it up because the cooling pumps down on the water line were wiped out. And that same risk happens at all these oceanfront sites. The wave action itself can wipe out the cooling pumps at the water's edge. So it's complete hubris for the operators, these utility companies and energy corporations to continue to operate these plants and not cool down the fuel by shutting down early. This makes no sense because
2: if the grid is down, if there's no place to get the energy so nobody can get the energy and still they're insisting on generating energy by running these very hot nuclear reactors, what's happening to the energy and why are they running this risk? My
1: personal opinion is there are several reasons. One For any existing lines that are open, there are charges that they can make because they're sending power out and it's going to the grid whether it's being used or not. So there's money coming in. So it's a a corporate money thing. It also costs money to shut down the reactor and have to then do the extra stuff taken later in a restart. So I think the main point is money. And we've noticed continuously that people at the top do not comprehend the mechanics of how the reactors themselves work. They're usually not engineers, or if they are, they're basic engineers who then went into financial management. So they don't have an understanding of what's happening and how that impacts safety and ultimately their own bottom line. You know, the cost that TEPCO is having for the cleanup of those reactors is outrageous. We can't take that kind of risk in this country. I don't believe we have, we have the wherewithal to do it.
2: One of my biggest fears in looking at Irma bearing down on Florida was the risk of having a Fukushima in the Atlantic. Was that a possibility? And if so, did we come close to that or not? because I know that Turkey Point was shut down, one reactor was shut down in advance, a second one had to shut down as a hard scram, and while the attempt was made to run St. Lucie, both reactors full power all the way through, one of them was taken down to reduced power by about two-thirds because of a problem that developed at the plant itself. How close were we to something possibly much worse along the lines of Fukushima happening in South Florida with Irma
1: as I said earlier the NRC has said the probability of a meltdown by running when the plant is at risk to lose off-site power is huge it increases the probability of a meltdown by 50 percent that's the NRC and as you and I both know They do not do an adequate job of regulating. They actually act like a handmaiden to the industry. So I think, and all of our review shows, that they increase the risk again because with a sudden shutdown, the fuel is hotter. If they had shut it down 24, 36 hours earlier, even 48 hours earlier, that gives the fuel chance to cool before there are any additional risks or burden put on. And then that allows them to be really well prepared for the loss of the ultimate heat sink and be able to control the decay heat. When the earthquake happened at Fukushima and the cooling pumps on the water's edge were destroyed, there was no way to cool a reactor. If you've already cooled for 24 36 48 hours and allowed, allowed the activity going inside the reactor to cool down the heat generated in the reactor itself is less problematic and so the diesel should be adequately able to handle that and the water could be recirculated
2: uh, excuse me just I mean this stuff devastates me on a regular basis there's another danger that I have not heard addressed, certainly not adequately by the powers that be, and that is the limitations of the ability to evacuate, especially given circumstances which can go south very quickly at a nuclear reactor.
1: The limitations are very evident in what happened in Fukushima Daiichi, what happened in South Texas, and what's is happening now and has been ongoing in Florida there are no reliable evacuation plans and since these plants were built and mostly evacuation plans were created when the plants were designed they haven't taken into consideration the increase in population changes in demographics any of those issues let's look at South Texas the water came in so quickly that everyone was overwhelmed. All the rescue facilities, the highway flooding. I mean, you can just look at the pictures and see how deep it was. An entire car floated away, houses floated away. So no one could go anywhere. Now, if you add into that radiation escaping from a meltdown, which South Texas increase the risk of dramatically. Where would people go? How would they go? They couldn't. So now let's look at what happened in Florida. Governor Scott ordered an evacuation of particular areas. I've spoken to people personally who moved, who did that evacuation or tried to do it. Some of them had to go home and some of them were just stopped in their cars hoping for the best, which where they were when it got reduced to a category one in in that area, I hope they're well. I haven't heard from them. But here's what happened. They didn't turn all the highways in one direction. So people couldn't just go away from where they were. There were tremendous traffic jams. Gas stations ran out of gas. Even when people stopped at facilities to use them, There was no water left. There was no food to eat in most places because those workers had to leave too. There was no one even operating anything. How then would you add in radiation releases to that?
2: It would be total hysteria and nobody could get out, which is the point at nuclear reactors around the country, around the world, that there's no way to get away from them should an emergency happen. That's
1: correct. In the evaluations that Arnie Gunderson and I and Fairwinds have done, there is not one reactor that we know of anywhere in the world that has an adequate evacuation plan.
2: One of the things that has struck me in this, I think deeper than ever before, has to do with the NRC's impotence when it comes to dealing with the industry it's supposed to regulate. The fact that the utilities in both Texas and Florida were given full power to decide to run or not in the face of this well-known and rapidly advancing hurricane rather than the NRC say, okay, Category 3 or higher, it's advancing on you, shut down now. When do they abrogate their power, or did they ever have it in the first place to be able to make demands of this industry that they're supposed to be regulating?
1: When I was first in the industry, both the first corporation I worked for and the second corporation I worked for portrayed the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as really assertive and hard in its stance and and really tough on regulation.
2: How long ago was that?
1: That was in the late 70s. How has that changed? It's changed dramatically. When I started in the industry, the Atomic Energy Commission had the dual purpose of regulating and promoting. And by the way, that is still the dual purpose of the International Atomic Energy Agency today. The so IAEA promotes as well as regulates, and you can't do that.
2: It's playing both sides of the same coin at the same right. time.
1: Exactly. And I think that's further complicated. When I first started working with the NRC, even though they were supposedly just the regulator, Most of them were the same people who had worked for the AEC, Atomic Energy Commission. So they changed hats, but they still had the same training and mindset. And that has carried through. In 1982, Congress started really reining in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They wanted to push for their personal agenda and more nuclear power. A 1,000 plants were originally planned across the United States. So that issue is when the 1976-founded NRC started already in the 80s being cut off at the knees as a regulator.
2: And that has led to their current inability to make the necessary demands on South Texas Project or Florida Power and Light to shut down the nuclear reactors in advance of the hurricanes. Now, STP is saying, oh, we're fine. You know, nothing bad happened here. We only had winds of 30 to 35 miles an hour, and we had no flooding. When just down the road in Bay City, they had over 10 feet of flooding, and we have satellite pictures showing the flooding on STP's site, including the roads in both directions so what will it take for the nuclear regulatory commission to have or assert or attempt to assert that kind of power in the future
1: i think it'll take one of three things it'll take the citizenry really objecting and pushing back and saying this is intolerable we have to fight for our lives in our communities and our health and our safety and it will take a change in congress because The current Congress really supports the industry, as does the new president's administration.
2: Fairwinds and Arnie Gunderson are very well known for their work on Fukushima, and especially the kind of testing of materials that are being found there to discover what the radiation levels actually are, which are impossible to get from the Japanese government or any official bodies over there. How does the work that Fairwinds is doing with Fukushima relate to South Texas Project, Florida Power and Light, and the aftermath of these two hurricanes?
1: Most recently, the Science of the Total Environment's journal published a peer-reviewed article by Arnie and Dr. Mar- Marco Kalthofen from Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and they have looked at what's happening in Fukushima and what the damage is from these meltdowns that were caused by a natural event and then man-made mishandling of that event. This journal already is in the 97th percentile of one of the most reviewed journal articles ever and what they're finding is that no matter how much cleanup is done the radioactivity is appearing in dust minute particles of dust that people breathe in or ingest and it's traveling everywhere it's in Japan it's migrating throughout Japan on areas that have already been designated as clean show up recontaminated by that dust we don't want that here And yet every one of these reactors that operates during a hurricane or a flood or the tornadoes that are more frequently coming across the country, every single one of those increases the risk that we will have a meltdown. And on that, the NRC says more than 50% increases the probability. What are we doing? Our lives, our children, our family. that's what we have to put first. This radioactive waste is not just around for 5 or 10 or 15 years because of the half-life involved. We're talking about 300 years contamination of a minimum, at a minimum to these areas. The radioactive isotopes that are released are bone seekers and muscle seekers, and cross the placental barrier. I don't think these are risks that we can afford to take.
2: Of course, I agree with you completely on that. And that risk was taken quite blatantly in the name of money or machismo or image or testosterone or who even knows what the reason is, but no reason is good enough.
1: I agree with you 100%, LaVey, and I'm just counting blessings
0: today that nothing worse happened. Maggie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. We will have links to two recent Fairwinds papers, Hurricane Season and Atomic Power Reactors, how timely is that, by Maggie Gunderson and Ben Shulman-Reed, and a direct link for you to download the peer-reviewed study that Maggie mentioned in the interview. It is co-authored by Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds and Dr. Marco Kaltoffen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute. It was published in the scientific journal Science of the Total Environment and is called Radioactively Hot Particles Detected in Dusts and Soils from Northern Japan. The links will be up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 325. Here's today's final thought. The thing about nuclear reactors and hurricanes is not that nothing catastrophic happened and that the nuclear reactors kept running through the hurricanes, rah, 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 as the industry would like you to think. The point is that the nuclear industry, the operators of those nuclear reactors, took risks with all our lives and futures, risks that with just a little change in circumstance in wind direction, in storm surge, could have turned out very different and not in a good way. Who are these people? And why do we let them get away with it? Why does the NRC let them get away with it? Over and above the horrific damage from the hurricane faced by the people of Florida and South Texas, a radiation release would have been catastrophic to people the environment, the Atlantic Ocean, the world. These nuclear so-called experts are playing games of chance with our lives, our futures, the future. And I, for one, don't like their odds. This is technology that has the potential to create damage from which we will never, ever recover. How dare they? You don't need a storm surge if the water intake passages get blocked and the pumps stop working or the grid power goes out and the backup diesel generators fail or they don't fail, they run but then they run out of fuel and no more can be gotten through because the roads aren't cleared in time. Then what? Fukushima in the Atlantic? That's the game they were playing and they have no right to do so. No one does. The nuclear industry should not be allowed to have their fingers on the slow-motion button to nuclear disaster, ending the future not with a bang, but with a very slow over-generations-but-not-that-many-of-them whimper. You know? How many times will we be forced by this industry to attempt to beat the odds and duck the nuclear bullet before it ricochets back and hits us smack between the eyes? I don't want to have to know. So cut it out, guys. Just cut it out. Now. And NRC, do your job. Don't make me come there after you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 12, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled by nuclear-news.net, dot capecodtimes.com, and ace reporter Christine Legere, Manichi.jp, Newsweek.com, Julie Wirt of Radiation Watch on Facebook, the self-hating cubicle drones at World Nuclear News who traded their souls for a paycheck because they didn't have the guts to pursue their own writing dreams, and that's why they write for World Nuclear News. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who show your love for this planet by being kick-ass supporters of nuclear awareness. Thanks also for gathering at Nuclear Hot Seat blog page on Facebook. Be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. If you know of a broadcast station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, have them get in contact by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved. But fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided, and a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Reminding you that Nuclear Hotseat is downloaded in 122 countries. Yes, the whole world. Is listening. Now you've all had your nuclear wake up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.